And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I am here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. We are here to sound the clarion call for the modern church to submit to the authority of Scripture and go back to its roots in the Reformation. This podcast exists to discuss modern and doctrinal issues through the lens of the Reformation. Please enjoy part two on the topic of justification. Um, so let's go a little further and talk about in uh, Romans chapter four. Right. So Romans four is crucial because here Paul looks at Abraham as the paradigm of justification by faith. Um, because of that verse, again, we already mentioned it. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul makes a big deal of that verse and uses it as his primary proof text, along with Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith, or I would prefer to translate it as he who is righteous by faith shall live. That's a better translation. But he uses that one as well. He uses that in Romans 1, 17. But... Leo, sorry, can you expand on that? Because I think a lot of people maybe even our a lot of our listeners don't understand uh, the the righteous shall live by faith what does the live refer to right it's referring to eschatological life it's not referring to living in terms of your conduct living yeah. the christian life yeah yeah so that's an internal living right. Etern- right. an eternal life yeah okay. and i believe that paul likes that verse habakkuk 2 4 because it's almost like an antithesis to leviticus eighteen five: the one who does these things shall live by them Mm-hmm. So you have the law and the gospel. The law says you have to do these things in order to have life, to have everlasting life. The gospel says you're righteous by faith. Those who are righteous by faith, they're the ones that have eschatological uh, life. They're the ones that obtain eternal life. Amen. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you can continue. Thank you. So by the way, Habakkuk 2.4 and Genesis 15.6, if you think in terms of um, the the Hebrew outline of the canon, which is the Tanakh. You know about this, right, Matt? I do. So what is the Tanakh? What is the T and the N and the K? What does that stand for? Tanakh is Torah. Right. The N is the Nevi'im, the prophets. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and the K is the Ketuvim, the writing. So the the Jewish canon is different from the uh, the Vulgate and the Septuagint and the English Bible. It, has, it breaks down to three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, sometimes it's even simplified to just the law and the prophets, right? That's right. And that's what Paul uses here, Romans 3.21, that the righteousness of God is manifested or wit- borne witness to in the law and in the prophets. 
In other words, in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Hebrew Bible, or Jewish Bible. Why does he mention those two portions, the Law and the Prophets? Well, Genesis 15.6 is from the Law, the Torah. Habakkuk 2.4 is from the Prophets. So both the law and the prophets contain this truth that justification is by faith, that righteousness comes by faith, hmm. borne witness to by the law, Genesis 15, 6, and by the prophets. So when he says the law here, he doesn't mean the law in the sense of the Ten Commandments, right. the moral requirements, Leviticus 18, 5, doing the law. He's not talking about the law in that narrow sense. He's just talking about the law as that section of the Bible, the, the writings of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Correct, yeah. So for Paul then, these two verses, Genesis 15, 6 and Habakkuk 2, 4, are crucial proof texts, one from the law, one from the prophets, which verifies then that this is the truth of God revealed in the Old Testament, and now it's seen and manifested uh, in the cross of Christ, in his active and passive obedience. We now see it in Christ. So that uh, as a result, verse 27 uh, there is no boasting. So no one can boast because we're justified by faith, not by works, not by anything that we do, not by keeping the law. Then verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Remember I said sometimes he'll say apart from the law, like he says in verse 21. Sometimes he'll flesh it out to a longer phrase, apart from the works of the law. Those are interchangeable. Apart from the law means the same thing as apart from the works of the law. And the works of the law just means doing what the law requires you to do, doing the good moral things that the law demands, loving your neighbor, loving God with your whole heart, uh, not committing adultery, not stealing, all those, uh, those things that go in, in the moral law. So this is the key conclusion then. We hold that one, that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That phrase, apart from the works of the law, is directly connected to the phrase by faith. And it's simply Paul's way of saying by faith alone, right? Because if we're justified by faith apart from doing what the law says... It has to be alone. Then that means we're justified by faith alone. Because the only other thing that you could add to that would be works, would be doing, would be things that God requires us to do to uh, be righteous by our own behavior. Mm-hmm. You also Rather can't say, yeah. You also can't say uh, that faith is a work because Paul right. makes a distinction here that they are he's not one and the same. He's, he's contrasting, contrasting faith, and, and that's a major right. problem actually today in the contemporary church is that some people say that faith is a work. Right. Yeah. And they also will try to define faith as, in such a way that it becomes a work by saying it's obedient faith or that repentance and obedience are a part of faith, or faith is faithfulness, or faith is um, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, or faith is allegiance to Christ. Humble, submissive obedience. Yeah, they add all these other, they fill faith up with all these other content that is basically the same thing as the works of the law. And thus it denies the clear contrast that Paul is making between faith and obedience, or faith and works. Might be well-meaning, but it's dangerous in the long run. Right. So that's Paul's thesis statement. Then in Romans 4, he turns to Genesis 15, 6 and the example of Abraham to prove it. And his basic proof is, look, it says that Abraham believed God, so there's faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness, so he's justified, and it's by faith. 
but the key thing is, is that how in, in what uh, in what uh, biographical phase of his life did this happen? Did this happen um, when he was obedient to God and circumcising himself and his sons? Or did it happen before he was circumcised and before he was trying to live a life of obedience to God? Yeah, before. It was before. And in fact, you could say that in a sense, Abraham was a Gentile when mm -hmm. he was justified, right? Yep. Because right. he wasn't circumcised yet. Yeah, that's right. Right? He was basically a Gentile. And so Abraham then becomes the model. And Paul is saying that Abraham is the father of all of us who believe. And that's just sort of Semitic language for saying he's the model. He's the paradigm. He's the archetype, mm -hmm. right? Um, we sometimes use that language too, right? Like, you know, we'll say that's the granddaddy of all guns or whatever. <laughs> yes, you know, we'll, right. we'll use that as like right. that's the, the 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 biggest one. That's the that's the prime case, and then all these other examples are just sort of like instances of that primary case. I mean, it just shows the wrongheadedness of how people view that. You know, they talk about circumcision. You know, uh, how circumcision saved him. Well, they don't read the verse. I mean, because I've heard that in the past from other people. Where look at he believed God, right, and he was circumcised, right. It was he was just being obedient. He believed God and he was circumcised later. Exactly. So right. he was being that was right. him being circumcised right. was just him being obedient. Right. Right. So that is an important thing is that he he was obedient, but he wasn't justified exactly. because of his obedience. The circum, because he of the was justified, he was declared exactly. righteous simply because he believed in God's. He promise. wasn't the ground. Right. The, the right. obedience that came from faith. Exactly. Right. The obedience that was the fruit of his faith and demonstrating the reality of his faith, but it wasn't the basis of his justification. So if you just read this whole passage then with this in mind, that Paul is trying to prove his point, the point being 328, we believe that a person is justified by faith apart from works. Uh, just read Romans 4 with that in mind, it all makes sense. What then shall we say that was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, like Abraham, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, so here Abraham is even being called an ungodly person. We tend to think of him as being so godly, but according to Paul, he was ungodly at this point in time. So to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, is it only for Jewish people who have the law and can keep the law? Or is it also for people that are outside of the Jewish law? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So Paul makes a big deal out of that chronological distinction there. Just like in Galatians 3, he makes a big deal out of the chronological distinction contrast between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic. The Mosaic came 430 years after the Abrahamic. Therefore, the promise, the Abrahamic promise, 
is not based upon the law. Here he's using the, a different chronology, but it's pretty much the same because circumcision is sort of like a foreshadow of the coming of the law. So how was it counted to him? Was, it, was, was he counted as righteous before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father, to make him the granddaddy, to make him the paradigm, to make him the archetype of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that would be Jewish people as well. Even Jewish people who are circumcised, they can also call Abraham their father if they walk in the same footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. Yeah, again, there's no distinction. And just because you're born from a Jewish lineage, there has to be circumcision of the heart, right? as we see in Romans chapter 2. Yeah. But the key thing here is that Paul is using circumcision as a, a marker of obedience. Right. So, some, like the, in the time of the Reformation, the um, Roman Catholics countered Luther and Calvin and the Reformers by saying, when Paul says we're justified by faith apart from works, he's just saying apart from keeping the ceremonial law. And they said, see, because all this discussion of circumcision here, I see. And the, the key is that when Paul talks about circumcision and also when he talks about Gentiles, both of those terms are to be understood in a deeper sense. For him, a Gentile isn't just a racial concept, right? For him, a Gentile is somebody who doesn't keep the law. Mm -hmm. Same thing with circumcision and uncircumcision. When Paul talks about somebody who's uncircumcised, that's not just a, you know, a medical condition. That's referring, it's not also just the ceremonial law. For him, that's an uncircumcised person is the same thing as a Gentile. Or another term for that is somebody who doesn't keep the law. Correct. So bringing up circumcision here is a, uh, it, it can be misleading at first if you just look at the surface level of the text. Right. And you could say maybe the Roman Catholics might have some basis for what they're saying. Same thing with the new perspective, by the way. The New Perspective does the exact same thing where they say works of the law is only talking about the Jewish identity markers, the badges that set the Jews apart from the Gentiles, such as circumcision, keeping the food laws, and the Sabbath. That's all Paul is saying when he says we're not justified by the works of the law, erga namu in Greek. He's just saying we're not justified by keeping those distinguishing markers of Judaism. But there's other problems with that as well, because as you can see elsewhere, Paul talks about that when you disobey one point of the law, that means you break the whole thing. So he demands right. perfect obedience. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's very important. Um, so back to uh, Romans 4 then. So notice how he's saying here that he's using the circumcision, uncircumcision thing as a way of talking about being under the law or not under the law. So... Abraham was justified while he was uncircumcised, which proves that he was justified apart from the works of the law. But then notice verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, see, that proves my point. If it's the adherence of the law, adherence to the law is the key issue here. And he's using circumcision and uncircumcision to get at that. If the adherence of the law are those who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. So for Paul then, he makes this very clear contrast between promise and faith on the one hand and law and works on the other. And this is another way of putting it is the law gospel contrast. Right. But Paul's language for it is promise law contrast. Hmm. And so the key is, is that the Abrahamic covenant was a promise. That's what it was. It wasn't a command. When God came to Abraham, he wasn't saying, okay, here's, the, here's all the things I want you to do. I want you to be circumcised. I want you to obey me and keep me and do all of my commandments. No, the Abrahamic covenant was simply a promise. It was just simply God unilaterally coming to Abraham and saying, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have a, a seed both in the individual sense, but also in the corporate sense, you're going to have a great nation and you're going to inherit the land, the land of promise that I'm giving to you. And there's no condition added to it. He doesn't say you have to do all these things for this to happen. It's just God's promise. And what's Abraham's response to that promise? It's just faith. It's just simply believing the promise. Thank you, God. Wow, this is amazing. I believe you. Right, right, right. right. That's all it is. There's no works involved. And so this is the heart then of what it means to be justified by faith alone. It means to be that we're justified not by doing something, not by keeping some condition. It's that we're justified simply by believing the promise of God and all the promises of the gospel, right? It's believing that what God says that, you know, he gave his son for you so that you might have your sins forgiven. So you receive that gift, just like David is rejoicing in this blessedness of having his sins forgiven. He didn't do anything to receive it. In fact, he committed some pretty awful sins, right? right? But he's simply receiving this gift of God, this promise of God, and he's rejoicing in it and laying hold of it by faith, by faith alone. Faith is an empty hand that simply receives the gift. The righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift. The death of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, having this right standing before God of being accepted as if we had perfectly kept the law ourselves. It's simply a gift. And faith is the only thing that can connect to that gift. Repentance doesn't connect to it, even though repentance is necessary as the fruit of it. Obedience doesn't connect to that gift, even though obedience is necessary as the fruit of it. Sanctification doesn't connect to that gift. The only thing that connects to that gift, the only... uh, I guess the analogy would be like a plug going into the, you know, you right. plug in your computer into the wall. It's like faith is just simply plugging in. It's not, you're not doing anything. You're just simply connecting and receiving all the power that comes through that socket, all the, the power of, of Christ and his righteousness and his life. And you're simply accepting it and receiving it. Right. And we accept it and receive it and become, like you said, it's... Um... It's not of us, therefore it's outside of us. The term extranos comes to mind. Exactly. And yeah. um, not only do we receive it, we, we receive it when we're at our worst. And uh, God still look, looks upon us and sees us in Christ right. as if we, like you said, have perfectly obeyed, even at our worst. Even at our worst. David was at his worst when he received that wonderful announcement of forgiveness. 
let's move on and discuss how James II uses justification. You know, a lot of people like to pit, you know, Paul against James or vice versa. And uh, you know, some people use this as uh, to show that works are necessary for final salvation. So let's discuss that. Okay. Well, it's understandable that they would because James seems to say that we're justified by works. Um, he uses the, the verb dikaiao three times, uh, James 2 and um, verses 24 through 26. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And I think I missed the third one, which was earlier up there. Um, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It's the same verb, dikaiao, that we talked about that Paul uses. Um, and so it is, at first, it seems to be saying just the exact opposite mm -hmm. of everything that we've been saying. Um, but I think that uh, there's some things that we could look at to help to clarify that and to resolve the contrast or resolve the apparent contradiction between Paul and James. Number one, I think it's important to point out that James does believe that works and faith are distinct. And you can see that just throughout the whole passage where he he doesn't say that faith is a work. He doesn't say that faith is some sort of obedient faith. He distinguishes between faith and obedience all throughout the passage. Just read it, you know. Starts off in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You know, can such a faith save him? Uh, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but I'll say, show, your, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So faith and works are distinct, but rather he's arguing that, that works are the evidence and the, the justification of your faith, or the proving that your faith is genuine. That's the first thing I would say, is that he doesn't confuse faith and works, he distinguishes them. What if someone brought up the objection, though, Lee, and they said, okay, well, what we mean by obedient faith is dead faith. So, you know, that, of course, faith is going to be obedient, that obedience flows out of faith. What if someone brings up that objection to you? Well, I agree with that. I agree that obedience does flow out of faith, but we're not justified by the outflow. Right. We're justified exactly. by faith. <laughs> and the reason we're justified by faith is because, again, we're justified by Christ. And the only thing that connects you to Christ is faith. Works, obedience, sanctification, repentance, faithfulness, all those things, they're not the thing that is like the, the, what taps you into Christ. They are simply the outflow of already being tapped into Christ. Exactly. So, and the reason why I say this is because when people say that we have saving faith, that again, they make the statement that it's obedient faith, right? Like you just yeah. said, or that faith, um, is some faith and repentance are basically the same thing. Yeah. Uh, the best way to put it is this, is that uh, the faith that justifies us is obedient, but we're not justified by the obedience, we're justified by the faith. Right. Or as the Reformers yeah. said it, 
same way basically is that we're saved by faith alone but the faith that is not alone exactly Westminster Confession chapter 11 paragraph 2 um, which is so helpful on this it says let me quote it to you here um, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification Yet is it not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Amen. So, um, the other thing too that I would say about James is that uh, James is probably using this verb dikaiao in a different sense than Paul. Um, there is... Exam there are examples of this evidentiary sense um, in Matthew eleven nineteen, for example, where Jesus says that uh, wisdom is justified by her children, um, and Matthew twelve thirty seven by your words you will be justified, and by your words you uh, you will be condemned. So, you could translate it in those cases as vindicate. It still has a forensic meaning to it, but it's more the idea of vindicating somebody in their claims. They're claiming to be something and now they're being vindicated by their works. So they're claiming to be a Christian. Um, I think James is really dealing with the issue here of people who profess faith in Christ but do not back it up with a life that shows the reality of their faith. That's what, he, that's what he's referring to as faith without works is dead. That is a, an empty profession of faith in Christ. Right. Uh, where somebody's claiming to be a Christian you know, it's like what Jesus said in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In that day, people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He doesn't say, I did know you, but you fell away. He says, I never knew you. You were never really one of mine to begin with. Right. And the problem with this passage that a lot of people um, use it mistakenly for is what I term final salvation um, just a couple minutes ago, that they use this as our works before God, somehow that we have to prove before God. Mm -hmm. But in this passage, just talking about our works before men. Yes, that's a very good good point. Yeah, the whole context is in the context of, you know, if someone says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You know, uh, if someone says he has faith but does not have works... Um, it's all in the, the arena of um, a profession of faith among men. It's not talking about how we can be accepted as righteous before God at the day of judgment. Bef yeah. Before we get into um, justification and sanctification and how the two relate, Onik, why don't you uh, give us a quote by John Piper um, that we have and... This kind of relates to what we're talking about, um, to his view of what we call the two-stage view of salvation. Okay, um, so John Piper is forward to Thomas Schreiner's book called Faith Alone. Um, how are we ultimately saved, it says, um, especially as it pertains to final salvation. So many of us live in a fog of confusion. James saw in his day those who were treating faith alone as a doctrine that claimed you could be justified by faith 
which produced no good works. And he vehemently said no to such faith. Uh, faith without works is dead, James 2.17. It is like a body with no breath, James 2.26. It is like an energy with no effect, James 2.20. And no completion, James 2.22. If there is justifying faith, it has works, James 2.17. So he says... I will show you my faith by my works, James uh, 2.18. And the works will come from faith. Um, continuing. The faith which alone justifies is never alone, but always bearing transforming fruit. This is from a, a tweet share on Facebook. And uh, Paul would confirm all... All of this because of because he said Galatians five six in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The only kind of faith that counts for justification is the kind that produces love, the kind that bears the fruit of love. The faith with which alone justifies is never alone, but always bearing transforming fruit. So when James says the when James says these controversial words, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, James two twenty four, I take him to mean not by faith which is alone, but which shows itself by works. Should I stop there? No, why don't we continue on? Okay. Paul calls this effect or fruit of or, or evidence of faith the work of faith, first Thessalonians one three and second Thessalonians one eleven. And the obedience of faith, Romans one five and sixteen twenty six, and says these works of faith and this obedience and this obedience of faith, these fruits of the spirit that come by faith, are necessary for our final salvation. There's the key, final salvation. Okay. No holiness, no heaven. Hebrews twelve fourteen. So we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone. In the same way, we are justified by faith alone. Essential to the Christian life or necessary for final salvation is the killing of sin, Romans 8.13, and the pursuit of holiness, Hebrews 12.14. Mortification of sin, sanctification and holiness. But what makes that possible and pleasing to God? We put sin to death and we pursue holiness from a justified position where God is 100% for us already by faith alone. Sounds like there's a contradiction here at the end. So if he's already 100% with us by faith alone, why then does it become necessary that um, the obedience of faith, these fruits of the Spirit that come by faith, why is it then necessary for our, for a, what he calls a final salvation? If God is already 100% for us. Exactly. He says, so we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. That's an oxymoron. We should talk about them the same way. The final salvation and the initial justification are exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there is the fruit of faith. We're not denying that. But as we said, it's not the ground. But when you put it that way, that's really confusing. You're saying that we get in somehow by imputation but then we have to keep ourselves in to make it the final salvation. Mm -hmm. Now, even if 
he would say that that's not what he believes. Why use this type of language? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole passage is <clears throat> a mixture of some good things and some bad things, you know? I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. the first part where he's talking about James 2, I don't totally disagree with. Right, of course. Um, so, you know, he's, he's accurate in his interpretation of James 2. Uh, the part where it gets problematic is when he says that we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. That to me is really, um, that's, that's the sentence that I disagree with the most. Yeah, it's it's disconcerting. Yeah. Yeah. You don't see that type of distinction with justification and some final salvation in the word of God. I don't, there's, See, no such place. Here's the problem that I have, and you have to take the whole thing in context, obviously. Is that some of the things, like you said, Lee, we don't have a problem with, right? That's the text. We believe that a dead faith is a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. Even the demons believe. But when he says prior, when he uses Galatians 5, 6, and he talks about faith working itself through love, and then he goes on further near the end when he says these works of faith and the obedience of faith, these fruits of the Spirit that come by faith are necessary for final salvation. To me, that sounds no different from, no different from a Roman Catholic, because mm-hmm. that's what they say, right? No, what we mean is, is that it's faith working itself out through love. Mm-hmm. I've heard Scott Hahn say this very same thing. It sounds exactly like John Piper. Oh yeah, that <clears throat> that particular that's from Galatians five verse right. six. And that verse was used heavily by the Roman Catholic Church exactly. back in the 16th century against the, Ref- against the Reformers. They used it to argue for their idea that we're not justified by faith alone. We're justified by faith, which has been formed by love. They use this idea of formed, that faith is sort of like just this bare thing in itself. It's, it doesn't really have any power in it. It's just this bare like doctrinal belief in your head or something. Yep. But then what makes it really effective for justification is when it gets filled up with love. They call it charity. They use the, the Latin mm-hmm. caritas, charity. Uh, and that, of course, brings in all this idea of works and obedience and faithfulness and all yeah. that is all uh, brought into this concept of love, loving God, loving your neighbor, keeping the law, basically. And they're saying that's what makes faith really energetic and powerful and real and effective is when it's filled with love and formed by love. So they believed in this idea of formed, formed faith, formed by love. And that's what we're justified by. And like I was saying, going back to Romans 4, Paul is clearly making a contrast between faith and works. Faith and you can call it love, right? Because love is keeping the law. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as sure. yourself. That's the essence of the law. Paul was contrasting faith with love and with works and with obedience and all those things. And he's saying that faith is simply this response to the mere promise of God. It's not something that I give to God. It's something that I receive from God. And so it's not that we're justified by faith, which has been formed by love. It's that we're justified by faith alone. And then true faith will produce those fruits of love and obedience Amen. and sanctification and yep. holiness and repentance and all of those things. They are a necessary consequence. They're the necessary consequence, but they're not the thing by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. 
I would like to state one thing um, to the audience here. Is it, look, we're not casting John Piper off as some heretic that's damned to hell, okay? I think that he's a Christian, but the fact is we think that he's gravely mistaken. And this language is really confusing, and it can lead people astray. It's dangerous. And that's the only reason we're pointing this out, because when you start talking about your works in an instrumental sense, then you're, you're in a dangerous pathway. It, like I said, it doesn't seem much different from a Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion at that point. Yeah, then how does God justify the wicked? So then God doesn't justify the wicked. God must be justifying those who are being holy, mm -hmm. who necessarily must be producing this holiness in them, in themselves. So we are wicked, and that's who God is justifying. Um, maybe I'm not making myself clear, but right. the, the, that's... That's who God justifies, is the right. wicked. It's right. th th Like you guys said, it's a necessary circumstance, our, um, uh, the good works, but not a, a necessary instrument. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if look, if it was going to be our works that save us, then we're all in big trouble. We're not going to make it, period. It's either the righteousness of Christ or not. Look, either you're under a covenant of works or you're under a covenant of grace. That's yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, this idea of distinguishing between being justified and getting to heaven is also problematic because if, going back to our earlier discussion about the covenant of works, the covenant of works was this idea that Adam, right? We're talking about before the fall. Adam, if he obeyed, would quote unquote get to heaven by his works. He would achieve this higher level of eschatological attainment to this higher level of being confirmed in righteousness and obtaining everlasting life that is heaven right by his works by his obedience that's the only time that works contribute to anybody getting to heaven and he failed now christ comes along as the second adam he does what adam fails to do and he does it for us that means that he, by his obedience and righteousness, gets us to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't say that we're justified by the work of Christ, but we don't get to heaven by the work of Christ. It has to, they, they go together. Being justified right. means that you have the right and title to everlasting life. Amen. The whole shebang. I have a great quote here from Charles Hodge on that point in his Systematic Theology. He says, believers have always felt that they have had that they had a title to eternal life. For this they have praised God in the loftiest strains. They have ever regarded it as intuitively true that heaven must be merited. The only question was whether that merit was in them or in Christ. Being in Christ, it was a free gift to them, and thus righteousness and peace kissed each other. As the work of Christ considered in his doing all that the law of God or covenant of works requires for the salvation of men, and as that righteousness is freely offered to everyone that believes, every such believer has, a, has as valid a claim to eternal life as he would have had had he personally done all that the law demands. Amen. Amen. That's great. Okay, so 
Now we've seen and we've touched on how people confuse justification and sanctification. So since that's the case, how are they not to be radically separated, Lee? Yeah, we've already touched on this, that justification and sanctification are distinct, but they're inseparable. They're distinct because justification is a legal reckoning. It's an imputation of righteousness, not a transform transformation of being made righteous. But they're inseparable because all who are justified, God also sanctifies. Yeah. Um, and if someone claims that they're justified, but there's no evidence that they're being sanctified, then you have to question whether their claim to be justified is, is accurate or not. Uh, the Larger Catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, has a great question and answer on this issue of how do we distinguish between the two? Question number 77. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, that is in justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. In the one, the one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other, sanctification, is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. Amen. Can you give us like a succinct definition of sanctification? It's God's work of transforming us into the image of Christ by union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Yeah, so both justification and sanctification are uh, are his work. Yeah. So one if one claims that we have to we have to produce the good works it's not even part of sanctification right. because that is God's work in us. Right. It's all monergistic. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we make the mistake, and I've probably even done this myself, where I'll simplistically talk about sanctification as something that we do. Exactly. But that's not really true. It's all of grace. It's all God's work in yeah. us. You know, Philippians, where Paul talks about, um, you know, it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, yeah. work out your salvation with yeah. fear and traveling. Yeah. yeah. So it's God working in you. Uh, the result and the fruit of sanctification is that we more and more die into sin and live unto righteousness. So there is something that we do as the result of it, but it's not something that we ourselves are doing. We're not sanctifying ourselves. It's God sanctifying us. Yeah, he's, so. he's changing us from glory to glory. Then we do have a participation in it yeah. because that we, we, we would sure. naturally respond to it with, uh, with obedience and such. But the, uh, the act of cause is God himself. Right. Exactly. It's the spirit working yeah. in us. Yeah. And not everybody's sanctified the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are going to, you know, bear little shrubs, and some people are going to bear forests. Right. Yeah, I'm much more sanctified than <laughs> than Matt. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a great example right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Another key thing about sanctification that's so important is that it is so closely connected to our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, Romans 6, that we've died with Christ. The old man has been crucified and <clears throat> the dominion of sin has been broken through, through Christ's death. 
and we've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life so that any progress that we do make in sanctification, any good works that do flow out from it are just the resurrection life of Christ working in us and manifesting itself in us. Amen. We have a pastoral question for you. Let's say you have a struggling believer who comes to you and say, you know what? I'm afraid I'm that person in James too. I don't see the fruit being produced in my life. Do I have a dead faith? What do you say to them? I would say the very fact that you're asking that question and that you're concerned shows that you have a tender conscience and that that right there is the evidence that you have the Spirit working in you Amen. and yeah. making you desire and hunger and thirst after righteousness. Amen. And so I, I would encourage them that if they're trusting in Christ alone, they have, they have the Holy Spirit and they are being sanctified. And even though they may um, not see it themselves and, and they see their constant struggle with sin, that they should be assured that they have Christ. And it's the person who hardens their heart. It's the person who, who just rebelliously says, I'm going to continue in this, sinful, in this sinful pattern of life and I don't care. And it doesn't bother me at all. That's the person I'd be more concerned about. Yes. But the person who is, who is saying, I struggle with sin and I keep falling into sin and I don't like that and it, it bothers me that's a true child of God. <laughs> that's someone that is wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ and right. desires to be more sanctified Amen. and needs the assurance of the gospel to give them um, that, that uh, assurance that will enable them and give them the power to mortify their, their flesh and to, to try to grow in those areas where they're struggling. Yeah, amen. Justification is is so practical in our yeah. daily lives. Yeah, we need to keep coming back to it. If you try to mortify sin, um, from the standpoint of not having assurance, then all you're doing is trying to be sanctified by your own effort and by the flesh. Yep. And so you absolutely need that assurance. You need the assurance that Christ is for you, that he's on your side, that his righteousness has been credited to your account, that you're accepted before God, that you can call God your father in order to even begin to mortify the flesh and to, to seek uh, to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Yeah, obedience so, won't come by just the law. It's going to come by the gospel. Yeah, the, the kindness of God comes to us through what he has done for us. Mm -hmm. Amen. Oh, Nick, you had something to say? Oh, yeah. So when you do have a believer that um, has those feelings of, of the guilt and the shame when they do um, you know, constantly, when they do sin and they do see their sinfulness, um, you see that the, the law still um, is, is applied to them where uh, they, they see the, the sinfulness of their sin. Um, and uh, so therefore it kind of, it, it does, it proves uh, the word of God even more where uh, Paul talks about how, uh, you know, the, the, the law is good and it's a guide to us and such. So that um, when the law becomes 
evident is uh, to a believer, uh, you, you see that in, you know, in, like you said, when they grieve when they do sin. So um, the law is good. The, uh, the law reveals our sin. And um, therefore, that's why we need the gospel, as you said, when you're trying to mortify the flesh without uh, knowing, uh, without the justification the free justification by faith, and it's it's just a it's an impossible task. There's there's no possible way to do it because you're just gonna you're gonna fall into despair because mm-hmm. you right. become a Roman Catholic or or an evangelical that's trying to live that higher life mm-hmm. who's never gonna attain it, and it's 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 despair. Right, and we're not saying that we don't want to spur one another into holiness because look, piety is a great thing. There's no doubt. But where does that piety stem from? It's not going to stem from law preaching. Mm-hmm. Constantly beating the sheep with the law every Sunday is not going to mm-hmm. produce a holy life. Mm-hmm. Again, it's going back to works righteousness at that point. You're going to end up in despair. Yeah. So, Lee, before we get out of here, um, why don't you tell people where you can be reached if they want to ask you a question or give some of your resources? Sure. Um, my website is upper-register.com and, uh, you can find papers there. Um, you can also find my email contact. There's a link there. Um, Lee at upper-register.com. So yeah, if you have any questions or if you want to explore these things further, I have a section on my website dealing specifically with justification on, I have a collection of quotes from reformed authors on justification from Calvin and Turretin and Hodge and others. And I have some papers dealing with certain aspects of justification, the law gospel contrast, things like that. So awesome. I also have some papers on covenant theology, specifically on the covenant of works and how that relates to justification. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. And Onig, why don't you give out the email address for our podcast in case someone wants to email us and ask us a question or Maybe they have a comment or two. Yeah, for any questions or comments, you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at bttrmin.org. That stands for Back to the Reformation Ministry. Or again, info at bttrmin.org. And we also have a Facebook page, Back to the Reformation. And we appreciate you guys for listening, and we appreciate you, Lee, for coming on and Thanks again, brother. It's a pleasure having you. Yeah, it was great to be on and a good discussion. Yeah. So there's another episode for you of the Back to the Reformation podcast. We hope you join us next time. See ya.